0: Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's precedential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzelly, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice, and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. This week... We're coming to you from the road, as my fiancé Kim and I relocate to San Diego. By the time you hear this, we'll be camping somewhere in Montana in Glacier National Park. But right now, we're coming to you from none other than Des Moines, Iowa, where, consistent with standard practice, we've extensively caucused and determined that, yes indeed, Immigration Review is the number one immigration podcast in the Hawkeye State. Knew it. Eventually, from time to time, we hope to have guest hosts on the podcast when Kim and I go on vacation. But we're not quite there yet. So this week, Kim has helped me out even more than usual, and will be our host, with me coming in just for some observations and pointers. As I've mentioned before, Kim herself is a former attorney advisor in the Miami Immigration Court, and a soon-to-be federal law clerk. But for the next three weeks, she's private bar. So take it away, Kim.
1: Thanks for that intro, Kevin. I'm very excited to take on the reins here and appreciate you giving your listenership some reassurance. I hope I don't disappoint them. All right. First up is Valenzuela Gallardo v. Bar, published on August 6, 2020. This case is about INA Section 101A43S, which describes an aggravated felony offense relating to obstruction of justice and holds that the provision requires a nexus to an ongoing or pending proceeding or investigation. It overturns and vacates a BIA published decision in this case. So, it's a big one. Now, Kevin's discussed many times on this podcast before that there are many aggravated felonies under immigration law. One of the lesser utilized ones is the one we're talking about today, INA section 101A 43S, which describes, "quote an offense relating to obstruction of justice, perjury, or subornation of perjury, or bribery of a witness for which the term of imprisonment is at least one year. End quote. If a state or federal criminal conviction matches this definition, a non-citizen has been convicted of an aggravated felony. Now to the facts of this case. Mr. Valenzuela was convicted of accessory to a felony in violation of California Penal Code Section 32 the BIA has twice held that a conviction under this statute matches INA Section 101A43S. With this decision, the Ninth Circuit has now twice vacated the BIA's decisions, this time based on the unambiguous language of INA Section 101A43S. Now here's what's going on. California Penal Code Section 32 essentially criminalizes knowingly aiding or concealing someone after they've committed a felony. In the BIA's second go with this case in 2018, matter of Valenzuela Gallardo, the BIA held that Mr. Valenzuela's conviction matched INA 101A43F because obstruction crimes include those crimes involving one, an affirmative and intentional attempt, two, that is motivated by a specific intent, and three, and this is the important part, to interfere with an investigation or proceeding that's ongoing, pending, or reasonably foreseeable by the defendant. The Ninth Circuit rejected that definition with this decision, specifically that third element about it being reasonably foreseeable. The Ninth Circuit acknowledged that under the Supreme Court's Chevron decision, it must defer to the BIA's reasonable interpretation of the immigration statutes, such as this most recent interpretation, but it need not and cannot defer to that definition if the statute's plain language is clear. That was the case here. The Ninth Circuit held that the statute 101A43S is, quote, unambiguous in requiring an ongoing or pending criminal proceeding, end quote not simply a reasonable foreseeable preceding, which is what the BIA had held. This is largely because this is how the concept of obstructing justice was understood when Congress passed INA 101A43S in 1996. This is confirmed by federal obstruction crimes and the types of crimes Congress specifically listed at 101A43S, all of which require a nexus to an ongoing or pending criminal proceeding. Because California Penal Code Section 32 is not limited solely to obstructing an ongoing or pending criminal proceedings, it's broader than INA 101A43S and is therefore not an aggravated felony. So, the Ninth Circuit vacated matter of Valenzuela Gallardo, and because that decision is vacated rather than simply disagreed with, That case no longer exists and cannot be relied upon by IJs anywhere unless and until the BIA reaffirms the decision in all circuits besides the Ninth. What a case! Here are some additional but no less important notes coming to you from Kevin Gregg himself.
0: What a case indeed, Kim. Thank you so much. First, The INA 101A43S interpretation amongst the circuits is a mess. For a review of where your circuit falls, I direct you to footnote 6. Next, the ninth Circuit devotes many pages to agreeing strongly with Amicus's brilliant arguments that the court should never defer to the BIA's interpretation of any aggravated felony definition because aggravated felonies are dual application statutes that are sometimes applied in the areas of law other than immigration, including criminal law. But the Ninth Circuit believed itself bound by the law of the case doctrine due to its prior decision in this very case, so it did not directly decide the issue about deferring to aggravated felony definitions made by the BIA. But as the Ninth Circuit notes, the Supreme Court has never deferred to the BIA's definition of an aggravated felony and sitting justices, most consistently Justice Gorsuch, have strongly indicated that such deference is inappropriate. So stay tuned for that. And finally, just a note on the categorical approach because I can't help myself. In the very beginning of its analysis, and at footnote 12 as well, the Ninth Circuit states, fairly unremarkably, that, quote, to determine whether that is the case, we must focus solely on whether the elements of Valenzuela Gallardo's crime of conviction sufficiently match the elements of a generic obstruction of justice offense under the INA, End quote. Note how the Ninth Circuit states that it's comparing the elements of the crime to the elements of a specific aggravated felony, rather than to multiple aggravated felonies, as Attorney General Barr wrote into existence last week in Matter of Reyes. And indeed, the one case the Attorney General relied upon in Reyes was a Ninth Circuit case from 2008. Further evidence, and there will be many, many more on the podcast, of why matter of Reyes is wrong.
1: And that is Valenzuela Gallardo v. Barr. Sticking with the Ninth Circuit we're going to go to Diaz Reynoso v. Bar, published on August 7th, 2020. This is a 40-page decision on withholding of removal in matter of AB, with a 36-page concurrence and dissent from recent appointee Judge Breath. Lots of law firms got involved with this one, and even UNHCR submitted an amicus brief. Let's get right to it. Ms. Diaz Reynoso is a member of the Mom Indigenous Group in Guatemala, For years, her partner beat her with a belt, raped her, and forced her into slavery in the form of working long hours in coffee fields. She fled to the U.S. in 2012, but was returned to Guatemala, where her partner continued to beat her and threatened to kill her and her daughter if she ever left again. She eventually did, again escaping to the United States. This time around, she claimed withholding of removal based on her membership in the particular social group, also known as PSG, which she defined as Indigenous women in Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship. The IJ denied her case, and the BIA affirmed, finding that the PSG was not cognizable under matter of AB, which, recall, overturns matter of ARCG, a case which had previously found cognizable a similar PSG, before being overturned. So here we have the Ninth Circuit specifically deciding the legitimacy of matter of AB and how it squares with the Ninth Circuit's prior precedent. So because unlike the aggravated felony definition at 101A43S, which we talked about earlier, the term PSG is ambiguous, and so the Supreme Court's Chevron case requires that the Ninth Circuit and all courts defer to the BIA and the Attorney General's reasonable interpretation of that term. In Matter of A.B., the Attorney General said a lot of things about PSGs and claims based on domestic violence and private actor violence. Here, the Ninth Circuit rejected Ms. Diaz-Reynoso's direct challenges to A.B. itself, but did so kind of by stating that all of the problematic things Jeff Sessions said in A.B. were really just dicta, and that A.B. really just reaffirmed the BIA's prior PSG case law, namely matter of WGR and MEVG. So the Ninth Circuit reads AB as requiring a case-by-case analysis of all asserted PSGs, which means that the IJs cannot simply deny domestic violence claims by citing to AB. Instead, they must specifically conduct the immutability, particularity, social distinction analyses, and if they don't, they commit reversible error. So, while the Ninth rejected Messias Reynoso's specific challenges to AB, it did so by trimming some fat from AB's edges in such a way that AB isn't so important. Rather, matter of WGR and MEVG remain the standard for analyzing particular social groups. Now, even though it rejected the challenges to AB specifically, the Ninth Circuit remanded proceedings holding that the BIA erred when it held that the asserted PSG, quote, "...suffered from the same circularity problem articulated by the Attorney General in matter of AB," end quote. Put another way, the BIA believed that Ms. diaz Reynoso's PSG was defined by the persecution itself. The Ninth Circuit took issue with this, in a, quote, "...worse citing in every PSG case, so get your pens ready." Quote, "...if a group is otherwise cognizable..." Matter of AB does not demand that it be devoid of any reference to an applicant's claims persecution. To the contrary, Matter of AB reiterated the long-standing rule that persecution may be relevant to a group's social distinction. The BIA's precedents, as well as our own, make this clear. End quote. How about them apples? So while the harm in non-citizen fears cannot be the sole identifying characteristic of the asserted PSG, it is relevant to the PSG inquiry, even under past BIA precedent. Don't let the IJs forget it, and simply copy and paste pages 20 to 23 in your briefs for a thorough explanation of past BIA case law on the subject. Here's another way to understand that concept. Although an immutable characteristic, such as being left-handed, for instance, won't normally be socially distinct in a given society, persecution on account of that immutable characteristic can then make the group distinct. After all, human experience shows that groups are often kind of ignored in a society until the group becomes the enemy, and then the majority starts doing bad things to that group. So with this holding, the Ninth agrees with the DC circuit in Grace v. Bar. Expect similar decisions to come from other circuits. Turning back to this case, because the BIA misapplied the anti-secularity requirement discussed in AB and prior BIA precedent, the case was remanded for the correct analysis. The Ninth circuit also remanded for further analysis under the torture convention. Congratulations to Ms. diaz Reynoso and to all of her very, very smart attorneys. Way to go, guys. Now here's Kevin again with some pointers.
0: So here's another great quote on the interplay between persecution and the particular social group analysis. Quote, Although persecutory conduct alone cannot define the group, persecution itself may be the catalyst that causes a society to distinguish a group in a meaningful way and consider it distinct. End quote. Indeed, Ninth Circuit, indeed. In this vein, Miss Diaz renoso still has a bit of an uphill climb on remand, and likely needs to show that the portion of her asserted PSG that relies on her inability to leave her relationship is not due solely to the abuse and persecution itself. And so the Ninth Circuit throws Diaz Reynoso and all practitioners a bit of a bone at footnote 11, stating, quote, There are many reasons a petitioner might be unable to leave a relationship, including a variety of cultural, societal, religious, economic, or other factors, end quote. Practitioners should probably cite, explain, and provide evidence for all of these grounds when asserting similar particular social groups. Next, at footnote 7, the Ninth Circuit states that even the BIA has, quote, recognized that although the views of UNHCR are not binding, they are a useful interpretive aid. And the Ninth Circuit is citing to matter of MEVG for that proposition. And of course, UNHCR stands for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and a lot of what they put out is pretty favorable for asylum seekers. So keep citing to UNHCR sources and to MEVG's reliance on those sources. Finally, I didn't have time to read recent appointee Judge Bress's 36-page concurrence and dissent, but his first quote is a bit of a gift. Quote, the court today purports to uphold matter of A.B., but in fact largely disregards it, creating an uncertain legal landscape and widely opening the door to the types of claims matter of A.B. said were largely unavailable, end quote. Excellently distilled, Judge Bress. Thank you. Take it and run with it, Ninth Circuit colleagues.
1: And that is Diaz Reynoso v. Barr. Our third case is Davila v. Barr. This is the second of two domestic violence type cases published by the Ninth Circuit on August 7th, granting the petition and remanding back to the BIA. Like the first one, this one has some hard facts. Here they are Miss Davila is from Nicaragua. She was raped and beaten by her partner over many years, leading, among other things, to a miscarriage. When she called the police, the police came, but instead of stopping the abuse, left after being bribed by her partner. When she finally escaped, he found her and beat and raped her again. She eventually escaped to the U.S. with the assistance of her mother, who mortgaged her house to pay for her travels to the United States. The IJ denied Ms. Davila's asylum application, finding that Ms. Davila was not persecuted on account of a protected ground, but rather, due to jealousy and her partner's alcoholism, The IJ also held that Nicaragua is able and willing to protect victims of domestic violence. The BIA affirmed solely on this ground, that Nicaragua is able and willing to protect domestic violence victims like Ms. Davila, and did not address whether she was persecuted on account of a protected ground. The IJ and the BIA also denied torture convention protection for similar reasons. Addressing first whether the Nicaragua government was able and willing to protect domestic violence victims like Ms. Davila, the Ninth Circuit rejected the board's reasoning, noting that her partner had indeed bribed a government official, the police officer, and that the country conditions corroborated Ms. Davila's testimony. The Ninth Circuit chastised the board for cherry-picking the record. Quote, The BIA was required to evaluate all relevant evidence in the record to determine whether Ms. Davila had carried her burden. However, the BIA's extreme selectivity in using the country report evidence belies any attempt to do so. The Ninth Circuit also remanded Ms. Davila's CAT claims for similar reasons, and in light of the Attorney General's decision a couple weeks ago in Matter of O F A S regarding rogue officials. I think Ms. Davila has a good claim to protection. A great result for Ms. Davila. Here's some more good stuff.
0: So here are some practice pointers while I drive through the plains of South Dakota. Don't try this at home. The Ninth Circuit noted that victims of persecution are not necessarily required to contact the police to meet their burden to get asylum, and that, as here... If they do contact the police one time, they're certainly not required to do so again and to report the inaction and the corruption of the first police officers that they called. And finally, because the BIA did not address the nexus requirement, the Ninth Circuit remanded the case for further consideration. Now, in light of the fact that this domestic violence type case is being remanded for a nexus analysis on the same day that the Ninth Circuit also kind of affirmed matter of A-B, which kind of casts serious doubt on the particular social group, in this case, Nicaraguan women unable or unwilling to leave their relationship. A legitimate argument exists that the first Ninth Circuit decision discussed today, Diaz-Reynoso, did not foreclose particular social groups such as this, which is exactly what Judge Bress lamented in his concurrence and dissent.
1: Thank you, Kevin. And that is Davila Vibar. Our next case is matter of Nivelo Cardenas, published by the Board of Immigration Appeals. This case is about motions to resend in orders of removal and reopen proceedings based on a lack of notice. Mr. Nivelo Cardenas entered the United States without authorization in 1999 and was served for the notice to appear, an NTA. He was briefly detained and then released and informed immigration officials that he'd be living at an address in Patchogue, New York. The NTA and subsequent hearing notice from the immigration court was sent to an address with the city misspelled by two letters, and the hearing notice was returned to the immigration court as undeliverable. Mr. Novello Cardenas did not appear for his hearing, and he was ordered removed in absentia. Eighteen years later, he moved to reopen proceedings based on a lack of notice of his hearing. Under immigration law, motions to reopen on this basis can be filed at any time. The IJ and the BIA denied the motion. Boiled down, the BIA assumed, without evidence, that the reason for the city's misspelling in the NTA and hearing notice is due to Mr. Nivello-Cardenas' error, rather than the immigration officials, who transcribes the address. The fact that Mr. Nivello-Cardenas signed the NTA with the misspelled address, according to the BIA, proved dispositive. With this case, the BIA adopted a recent Fifth Circuit holding that a non-citizen's failure to correct any address mistakes in the NTA, no matter whose fault, will likely fatally undermine any subsequent motion to reopen based on a lack of notice. Here are two observations, again from Kevin, also again from the road.
0: That's right, Kim coming to you from the road, still in South Dakota, Mitchell, South Dakota, to be specific, which is home to the world's only corn Palace. Whatever that means. Not really a practice pointer, just an observation. Here are the two practice pointers. First, Mr. Novello Cardenas asserted that former INS provided him with a bag-and-baggage letter with the correct address, presumably shortly after the in absentia order of removal, which did in fact contain the correct address therefore demonstrating that Mr. Novello Cardenas provided the correct address to immigration officials as he asserted in his motion to reopen. The BIA avoided analyzing this circumstantial evidence by feigning confusion at what appears to me a decent logical argument. And second, the BIA also held that because Mr. Novello Cardenas had not updated his address in the 18 years since being ordered removed, he had not acted with diligence in bringing his motion and the BIA could therefore reject many of his various arguments. Therefore, practitioners, if your client has acted with diligence to move to reopen proceedings or update his address with immigration officials even shortly after an absentia removal order, a solid argument exists that a failure to correct a mistake in the NTA is not per se fatal to a subsequent motion to reopen even under this decision. In other words... Even if your motion has similar facts to this case, a showing of diligence may nevertheless save your client.
1: And that is Matter of Novello Cardena. Moving to the First Circuit, we've got Machado Sigaran v. Barr. This case is about eligibility for Temporary Protective Status, or TPS. Mr. Machado was a Salvadoran national who came to the United States in December 1997 at the age of 16 and was ordered removed in absentia when he did not appear for his immigration court hearing in 2000. In 2011, he was picked up by ICE and physically deported. He returned to the U.S. 90 days later and pled guilty to the federal crime of illegal reentry, But then an immigration judge granted a motion to rescind the in absentia order of removal and reopened proceedings based on a lack of notice to Mr. Machado. Now back in removal proceedings, Mr. Machado applied for TPS. Now what's TPS? Temporary protected status is a type of immigration status that temporarily prevents removal and allows for work and travel authorization. To obtain TPS, a non-citizen must be from a TPS-designated country and, among other things, be continuously present in the U.S. from the designated date. In this case, Mr. Machado is from El Salvador, and therefore, pursuant to the designated date, needed to show he was continuously present in the U.S. since December 27, 1997. The problem for Mr. Machado was that he was absent for 90 days after ICE executed his removal order and removed him in 2011. If an absence is, quote, brief, casual, and innocent, end quote, it doesn't disrupt continuous presence. But 90 days is a lot, and plus, it was supposed to be permanent. After all, he was deported, and the regulations make clear that a deportation disrupts the required continuous presence. Mr. Machado argued that 90 days isn't so much, and that because the IJ ultimately rescinded the in absentia removal order, His absence was brief, casual, and innocent. The BIA denied this argument and the First Circuit affirmed, based on a finding that the IJ improperly rescinded the removal order in the first place. Put another way, the BIA held, contrary to the IJ, that Mr. Machado received proper notice of his hearing, and so, his removal pursuant to the resulting in absentia removal order, even though later rescinded, was not brief, casual, or innocent. Very sneaky, BIA. And very rough for Mr. Machado. Here are two practice pointers. First,
0: the bad. This case brings up an issue that the firm I'm a partner at and other firms have come into contact with in recent years. Beware of oil motions to remand to the BIA in the era of Trump. Oils remand from the circuit may simply result in a better written decision from the BIA denying relief or ordering your client removed. This is particularly so because, as recognized in this case, the BIA has authority to raise issues and reopen cases sui This case should also serve as a bit of a warning to non-citizens who are deciding whether or not to appeal their partial wins to the BIA, such as when a non-citizen wins withholding but loses asylum, you might end up losing everything at the BIA, even if DHS doesn't cross appeal. Second, some good. The BIA, quote, assumed on remand that a departure pursuant to a removal order could be brief, casual, and innocent, if the order was later rescinded as invalid from the outset, end quote. The First Circuit didn't actually reach this issue, but also certainly didn't reject it. So if practitioners have cases with this unique fact pattern, argue away.
1: And that is Machado Cigarron v. Bar. <music> on to the Fifth Circuit, we've got Jose Antonio Garcia v. Bar, published on August 4, 2020. This is another case with hard facts. It's about the definition of a crime of child abuse under INA Section 237A2EI and whether sexual assault of a child under Texas law amounts to a crime of child abuse. Here are the facts. Mr. Garcia is a native and citizen of Mexico. He became an LPR, a lawful permanent resident, in 1990 and in 1999 committed sexual assault against his 14-year-old stepdaughter. Years later, he was charged with sexual assaults of a child in violation of Texas Penal Code Section 22.011A2. He was convicted in 2018 and sentenced to 10 years probation. DHS initiated removal proceedings, and the IJ found him removable because his crime qualified as a crime of child abuse and denied his application for cancellation relief. The BIA agreed. At the Fifth Circuit... Mr. Garcia challenged the agency's decisions on two grounds, both of which are issues of first impression in the Fifth Circuit, which is really just fancy lawyer speak for we've never encountered these issues before. His two arguments were, one, that the BIA's definition of crime of child abuse is not entitled to deference, and two, that his conviction is not a categorical match to the BIA's definition. We'll take those issues one by one. As to whether the BIA's crime of child abuse definition is entitled to deference, the Fifth Circuit applied the two-step Chevron Test, which requires courts to determine at Step 1 whether a statute that's being interpreted by the agency is ambiguous, and at Step 2, if the statute is ambiguous, whether the agency's interpretation of it is permissible or reasonable. At Step 1, the Fifth Circuit found that the statute is ambiguous. Under INA Section 237A2EI, any alien who at any time after admission is convicted of a crime of domestic violence, a crime of stalking, or a crime of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment, is deportable. Congress didn't expressly define crime of child abuse, and its legislative history doesn't expressly state its meaning. The Fifth Circuit noted that every circuit court to consider this issue has found the statute silent or ambiguous on the meaning of a crime of child abuse they too so held. Because the statute is ambiguous, the court then looked to whether the BIA's interpretation of it is reasonable. The Fifth Circuit noted that the BIA has fleshed out the meaning of a crime of child abuse in two precedential decisions, matter of velasquez herrera in 2008 and later matter of Soram in 2010. The BIA's definition of crime of child abuse is very broad, Indeed, the cases say so, that the crime of child abuse should be interpreted broadly to mean any offense involving an intentional, knowing, reckless, or criminally negligent act or omission that constitutes maltreatment of a child or that impairs a child's physical or mental well-being, including sexual abuse or exploitation. It entails infliction of mental or emotional harm, sexual abuse including direct acts of sexual contact or the use or exploitation of a child as an object of sexual gratification. It also is not limited to offenses requiring proof of injury to the child, and encompasses even endangerment-type crimes. And for purposes of the Crime of Child Abuse provision, a child is anyone under the age of 18. The Fifth Circuit noted that there's a circuit split on the issue of whether the BIA's interpretation of a crime of child abuse is reasonable and should be entitled to chevron deference, with the 9th, 3rd, 11th, and 2nd giving chevron deference to the BIA's definition, and the 10th circuit rejecting it. In the end, the 5th circuit sided with the majority of circuits and affords chevron deference to the BIA's very broad definition of crime of child abuse. Now, second, the issue of whether Mr. Garcia's conviction meets the crime of child abuse definition, the Fifth Circuit says yes, and here's why. The minimum conduct criminalized under Mr. Garcia's statute of conviction, section 22.01182 of the Texas Penal Code, criminalizes deliberate acts of sexual contact between a victim who is almost 17 and a perpetrator who just turned 20 the Fifth Circuit held that his state conviction falls squarely within the board's generic definition of a crime of child abuse because 1. it meets the age requirement of the victim being under age 18 and 2. meets the act requirement of committing at least a criminally negligent act against a child. Indeed, the Fifth Circuit noted that this crime required an intentional or knowing act. Mr. Garcia tried to argue that his statute of conviction is overbroad because it did not require a knowledge of the victim's age and no harm was required for conviction. The Fifth Circuit rejected both arguments because the BIA's definition doesn't require knowledge of the victim's age, just a culpable mental state with respect to the act. The Fifth Circuit further noted that sexual contact with the child necessarily impairs their physical or mental well-being. Which is all the BIA definition requires. So, Mr. Garcia lost his case, and that is Garcia v. Barr. Moving on to the Sixth Circuit, we got Cuevo's Nuno v. Barr, published on August seventh, twenty twenty. This case is about issue exhaustion, motions to reopen, and circuit review. Mr. Cuevas Nuno is a Mexican national who entered the U.S. unlawfully, and in 2012, DHS served him with an NTA. He appeared at his initial hearing, but failed to appear at his second one, apparently because an employee at his attorney's firm confused him about the hearing date. The IJ ordered him removed in absentia, and denied a subsequent motion to reopen, finding that his confusion was not, quote, exceptional circumstances, as defined in statute and regulation. The BIA summarily affirmed the IJ's decision. Now, it's worth noting at this point that on appeal to the BIA, Mr. Cuevas Nuno made only one argument, and that is that the IJ erred in failing to exercise sui sponte discretion because confusion over his hearing date was a, quote, an exceptional situation. On petition for review with new counsel, Mr. Cuevas Nuno made four arguments. 1. That the confusion constitutes an exceptional circumstance under the motion to reopen statutes. 2. Lack of notice. 3. Due process. And 4. That the IJ erred in requiring him to submit additional evidence for his cancellation application. Now the Sixth Circuit looked to the four corners of Mr. Cuevas Nuno's brief and found that there was nothing in his brief about the second, third, or fourth claims. So, because Mr. Cuevas-Nuno preserved and adequately exhausted only one of his arguments, it had jurisdiction to review only that one, and did not consider his other three arguments. Turning then to that one claim, the only reviewable argument, which is about Mr. Cuevas-Nuno's confusing the date amounting to exceptional circumstances, the Sixth Circuit said that it actually also lacks jurisdiction over that issue as well, because Mr. Cuevas-Nuno's BIA brief, only discusses exceptional situations within the context of his argument that the IJ erred in failing to exercise her sua sponte authority to reopen, not her statutory authority to reopen under the INA. Recall, Mr. Carvas Nuno argued at the BIA that the incorrect notice his counsel's employee gave him constitutes an exceptional situation for purposes of sua sponte motion to reopen that argument is different from the one he's raising here at the Fifth Circuit, which is whether that conduct constitutes an exceptional circumstance, for purposes of statutory motion to reopen. Because these two entail different standards and terms, and are derived from different sources of law, one being judicially created and the other statutory, preserving one does not preserve the other. So, unfortunately for Mr. Cuevas Nuno, his removal order stands we've got one observation for you.
0: As footnote 1 makes clear, this is clearly an ineffective assistance of counsel motion to reopen, masking as a sua sponte motion to reopen. Most likely because the same attorney who arguably committed ineffective assistance filed the initial motion to reopen before the IJ and appealed to the BIA. And as footnote 6 makes clear... If an ineffective assistance motion to reopen is eventually filed and complies with the matter of Lozada, it may eventually prove meritorious. Because recall, in the motion to reopen before the IJ and the VIA, the attorney was blaming his or her own firm for misinforming the non-citizen about the date of his hearing. Circuit court counsel tried as best he could to get around this glaring flaw, but the Sixth Circuit saw through it.
1: And that is Cuevas Nuno v. Bar. Our last case is Galliano Romero v. Bar, published by the Tenth Circuit on August 4th, 2020. This case is about non-LPR cancellation of removal and its requirement of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. Mr. Galliano is from Honduras and has lived in the United States for nearly 20 years, since the age of seven. In removal proceedings, he tried to adjust status to that of an LPR through his U.S. citizen wife, but even though he had once had DACA, he was ineligible to adjust status because he unlawfully entered the United States without inspection, admission, or parole. Mind you, he was seven at the time of entry. So, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240 ab which requires, among other things, that he show that his removal will result in exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen wife. The IJ recognized that Mr. Galliano-Romero's wife suffered from severe depression, and that she would suffer hardship if Mr. Galliano-Romero was removed. But the I.J. held that the hardship would not meet the significantly high threshold of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard that Congress put into effect in 1997. The BIA affirmed. The Tenth Circuit held that it lacked jurisdiction to review whether Mr. Romero's removal will result in exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen wife, because it is a discretionary factual determination and the Tenth Circuit has specifically held that the Immigration Act divests it from jurisdiction to review such determinations. Mr. Romero also challenged the BIA's denial of his motion to remand to present a Convention Against Torture claim from Honduras. The Tenth Circuit denied the challenge to that decision, finding that the BIA did not abuse his discretion because Mr. Romero had not submitted material and previously unavailable evidence in support of his motion. Here's a bit more on jurisdiction.
0: Mr. Galliano Romero's attorney did a pretty good job with creative arguments trying to argue around the jurisdictional bar by asserting that the issues presented were actually questions of law and constitutional questions rather than questions of fact. Namely, that the BIA misapplied its own precedent to settled facts in reaching its hardship finding. The Tenth Circuit rejected this argument, finding that Mr. Galliano Romero was really just asking the Tenth Circuit to reweigh evidence that the BIA had already weighed, and stating, quote, that the Board has announced a standard to aid its hardship determination it does not create jurisdiction for us to review the Board's application of that standard, provided that the Board acknowledges its standard and exercises its discretion within the bounds of its precedence cabineting of such discretion, end quote. Just another example of why, when trying to overcome the INA's many jurisdictional hurdles, framing is often everything. And sticking with jurisdiction, here's a good quote and standard to argue quote, We have jurisdiction to review petitioners' claim that the Board's adopted hardship standard rests on an unreasonable interpretation of Section 240AB1D's exceptional and extremely unusual hardship condition. End quote. The circuits also have, quote, jurisdiction to review a claim that the board departed from its own adopted hardship standard by ignoring it or favoring some other inapplicable standard, End quote. A fine line, but an important line, and the standards to argue in the circuits.
1: And that is Galliano Romero v. Barr.
0: So there you have it, you're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli & Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgregg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, Feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.